Evolution foiled again. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Today we're going to be hearing from Dr. Job Martin. Now, uh, many of you are familiar with his ministry. He's been around for a while, uh, and he has uh, three videos that are really well made uh, called Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. If you're familiar with those videos, um, a lot of content is going to be pulled from those two videos today. Um, or three videos, sorry. Uh, Dr. Martin has been in this realm for a while, and in these videos, he talks about many different creatures that in various ways defy evolution. And what do I mean by that? Well, as it's taught in schools today, random mutations happen uh, in the genome of various creatures, and then when these random mutations happen, some of them are beneficial. Now, of course, we've discussed this before. There are no beneficial mutations that add complex information uh, to the genes. It doesn't happen. It's never been observed. And when you look in the science textbooks, they never have a good example of a beneficial mutation that adds complexity. Okay, information. But let's just use our imaginations here as as this theory goes, uh, random mutations happen. Some of them are beneficial. The beneficial ones, uh, those creatures uh, live longer, produce, uh, reproduce better. And so eventually, generation after generation, the ones that had that uh, genetic advantage, if you will, that new mutation, uh, they were uh, made an X-Men or something like that, just kidding, and they're able then to uh, continue to reproduce and to continue to outlast and outcompete in, uh, in nature, okay? And so they become now the new dominant herd of whatever this creature is, right? And over generations and generations, millions and millions of years, uh, these creatures continue to evolve into what we see today, well, in these videos, you're going to see many different creatures that in various ways show that they could not have evolved piece by piece, bit by bit. Uh, it's really quite fun to see this. Now, uh, these videos, you can find them, of course, uh, on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, probably more likely, though, you'll be able to find them on Biblical Discipleship Ministries. Uh, website. I think it's uh, it is biblicaldiscipleship.org. Uh, you can get all of these videos. He has another series called Creation Proclaims. But uh, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Martin about some of these creatures. It's going to blow your mind, even though you can't see the incredible footage of these uh, creatures that defy evolution. They're their traits and what Dr. Martin talks about. It's so much fun to hear about these fun creations that God has made. And so um, I'm going to 
forego telling you the testimony of Dr. Martin because he's going to jump into that right when we get started here today. He comes from an atheistic background, and it's quite interesting how he came to the Lord. And so, you know what? With that, let's go ahead and welcome him. Dr. Martin, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. That's good to be here, Michael. Uh, the the honor is mine. Uh, I have watched your videos, uh, the incredible creatures that defy evolution, yes. uh, that you did with uh, David Hames. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, w- there's three of them. I must have watched those videos. Well, we had for the longest time. Uh, my daughter, when she was ages about four to maybe eleven years old, yes. those were in the DVD. DVD player playing all the time. Uh, we've actually had an opportunity to show those to uh, several different youth groups, um, snippets, bits and pieces and parts, and uh, just an amazing job. So uh, kudos for that. Love those videos. Um, so friends, Dr. Joe Martin, Dr. Martin here um, has been in this young earth creation movement or rather the creation science movement, uh, studying the wonders of God's creation for a while now. In fact, Dr. Martin, tell us about how did you become a believer in Jesus Christ? I know you've got a fun story, and I know my listeners are going to love this. Well, actually, I was uh, raised in an independent Baptist church in Pennsylvania, but I did not receive Jesus as my Savior. And uh, so I went off to college, uh, Bucknell University in Pennsylvania there, and uh, took a course in organic evolution, immediately became an evolutionist, went on to University of Pittsburgh, College of Dentistry. And uh, when I got out of dental school, I was agnostic. Uh, I wasn't an atheist. Atheist says there is no God. Agnostic says basically, I don't know, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. So I was agnostic. Now, this was 1966, so it's the height of the Vietnam War. It's the, I'm the hippie generation. And um, <laughs> so I was looking into Zen Buddhism, which is what a lot of people did back then. And mm-hmm. I was an evolutionist. So here I was, um, uh, a new dentist who was an agnostic Zen Buddhist evolutionist who had been raised in a Baptist church. And uh, so <clears throat> went into the military. I was the uh, dentist for President Johnson's flight crews, Air Force One Presidential Fleet. That was 1966 to 68. It's called the 89th Military Airlift Wing, uh, Andrews Air Force Base. And I was in the officers' club. I mean, I was in the office. I'm in basic training, and I was in the officers' club. And I decided to say a prayer to the God of the Bible. Now I'm a total pagan at the time. I'm drinking a whiskey and seven up. And I and I just said, okay, God, if you're up there, you have two choices. You can either show me the girl I'm going to marry, or you're going to see the wildest Air Force officer you've ever seen. <laughs> and my wife says, God must have been shaking in his shoes, a joke, of course. And I, I thought, well, nobody heard that. I'm going out and live it up. So I walked off the base, uh, walked into the motel where the military had uh, put some of us, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, saw this girl talking on the telephone and thought, Okay, here I go. So I thought, boy, she's beautiful. So I walked over and didn't even introduce myself. I just said, uh, hey, if you're not doing anything tonight, why don't you come down to my room? Not a good thing to say. She, oh, my goodness. She ignored me completely, like any good <laughs> Christian girl should. And sure. uh, But the next day I saw her on the base, and I was a captain. She was only a lieutenant. 
were both naive enough to think she had to follow orders, so I ordered her to go out with me that night. She thought she had to. So we went out, and I told her I was going to marry her on the first date. Now, any young people listening to this, that's not a good idea either. (laughs) But that's what I did, and I knew I was. I knew I was going to marry her, and uh, she thought I was crazy. Anyway, I got to Washington, D.C., and decided I'd like to go to church. I'd never gone to church by myself. My mom always dragged me off to church, but uh, praise God she did. But anyway, so I went to church, and on the way out, the pastor shook my hand. His name was Charlie Warford, his Forest Heights Baptist Church right there off Andrews Air Force Base. Shook my hand. He said, Captain, is there anything I could do might help you spiritually? I said, well, anything you could do to help me spiritually. I'm zero. So he just asked me to read the Bible with him on Monday mornings. So we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not all on the same morning. And uh, we got down to John chapter 3, and it's talking about Nicodemus and some things there and and we got down to verse 16 and it said for God so loved the world and it was like bang God just hit me in the heart uh, I loved the world I loved the things of the world uh, I was committed to the world and it's like for God so loved the world and it was like God was just saying hey Job I love you and for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and i i got down on my knees with charlie warford and said lord jesus and but we'd already read matthew mark and luke and so i knew who jesus was and uh i got down on my knees with charlie warford i said okay god you you know i'm a sinner i know it you know it would you please forgive my sin i'm receiving jesus as my savior and and uh Make me the kind of person you want me to be now. And so I put my trust in Jesus, became a Christian. And I immediately went from being an agnostic Zen Buddhist evolutionist to being a theistic evolutionist. Because now I had God, but I still believed in evolution. Didn't even know there was any problem there. Now, to make a long story short, ultimately, I got offered a job on the faculty at Baylor Dental College in Dallas. And I gave my first lecture as a dental professor on the evolution of the tooth from fish scales. And I told the students how over thousands of years these uh, these uh, scales moved into the mouth uh, on fish and became teeth. And I can't believe I believed that. Uh, that's what I was taught. They're still teaching that, by the way, in universities. Scales became teeth. There's no relationship at all between scales and teeth, whether you look at it embryologically, physiologically, morphologically, functionally, histologically, zero relationship, but they still teach it because they don't have anything. So anyway, so I gave this lecture, fish scales became teeth, and two of my students challenged me after class. Uh, Dr. Martin, would you be willing to study creation science with us? Now, this is the first time I'd ever heard of it. I'd been a Christian five years, I think, at that point, and... uh, they said, we believe the whole universe is about 6,000 years old. We believe the days in Genesis were normal days. There was a flood that covered the whole earth about 44, 4,500 years ago. And uh, we'd like you to study some of these things with us. Uh, would you do that? Well, I immediately said, well, yes, of course I'll do that. And I'm thinking, man, these students are back in the Stone Ages. I mean, everybody knows that the scientists <laughs> have proven billions of years, and evolution is a proven fact, and... So I'm thinking, i gotta, I got to get these students up to date here. So I said, sure, I'll study with you. And well, it took almost five years. It's probably the biggest spiritual struggle I ever had in my life. 
but I emerged a biblical creationist. And that means that the whole universe is about 6,000 years old. There was a flood covered the whole earth about 44, 4,500 years ago. Those days in Genesis are normal days and all those kind of things. And one of the things that did it, well, two things. They asked me to do two things. I was reading my Bible, and they asked me to study the assumptions behind evolution, the guesses. I didn't think there were any. And they said, well, you've you got to know how to spot them. Well, I was never taught how to spot the assumptions. I mean, you have to look for some words, words like in the, in the evolutionary literature. It'll say things like, we posit this, or we believe this, or this suggests this, or we think this, or maybe that, or and those kind of words. And you say, whoops, that's, that's an assumption. They don't know that. They, they just think it. And I began to realize the assumptions aren't true behind evolution. And then they asked me to study some animals. And so, actually, the first one we studied was a little insect called a bombardier beetle. I, I think you know some things about a bombardier beetle, don't you, Mike? Michael? Absol absolutely, yeah. Uh, so tell me about this little guy. Well, this little little bug, half inch long or so, and there's different different ones, but. Uh, if evolution is true, you have to ask the question, which is what I was asking back in 1971 when these students came to me, uh, how is that thing going to evolve? Because it has all these very special chemicals and mechanisms inside itself. Because what it does is it shoots its, its enemies with uh, boiling hot gases out of twin tail tubes. So let's say this little bug evolved uh, the chemical factories to make the hydrogen quinone and the hydrogen peroxide. Those are two of them that it, it mixes. Of course, you mix those two, and they don't do anything. They just sit there in neutral. So if it got those, it's not going to help it shoot its enemies. But then it also has an, another little factory inside itself, this little insect, that makes exactly the right catalyst so that when it shoots the catalyst in with these, mixes it in with these other uh, chemicals, you get this uh, explosive reaction. And now we have a problem, because the first time it did that, if it didn't have like an asbestos-lined firing chamber, it would blow <laughs> itself up. And of course, we all know splattered bug pieces can't evolve improvements. <laughs> So that would, that would be the end of the bombardier beetle, but, but we still have them because it has like an asbestos-lined firing chamber, but even so it would blow itself up if it didn't have somewhere for that explosive reaction to go. And it does. It has these twin tail tubes. And it can aim them out the side, out the front, out the back. And, um, and another interesting thing, scientists put that, um, that explosion when you... You can actually hear it. It's like a pop. It's like if you snap your fingers together. It's just a pop. But it's not just a pop. Uh, at Cornell University, they put it in ultra-slow motion, and they discovered it's like a sequential uh, reaction. It's like... And, uh, and then they started thinking, well, why, why would it be like that? And they discovered that if, if it was just one big pop, and let's say... Uh, a spider is coming up from the side, and the bombardier beetle doesn't have time to turn around backwards and shoot out the back, so it just brings its gun turret up and shoots out the side. Well, if it was just a big pop, 
it would it, it's like lighting an afterburner on a jet engine it would just shoot itself right out of there but with that kind of a sequential <laughs> reaction it can stand there on its little legs and it does just fine and so you know they asked me to study this little insect and and I and I realized you know something that little bug only god could do that it needed all of its parts um there's a name for that too i think you know that uh, specified irreducible complexity we probably yes. ought to talk about that a little bit uh, do you want to talk about that well yeah yeah i'd like to hear what what you uh, what exactly is irreducible complexity and i i see that um the bombardier beetle has that uh trait about it it is in many ways irreducibly complex what would that mean well um it's like fractions uh Students learn fractions, and they learn to reduce fractions. And you reduce them down so far, and you can't reduce them down anymore. And that's like, um, let's say, this, this little insect, this bombardier beetle. It is irreducible in the sense that it needs all its parts, or it blows itself up and it's dead. So um, it's irreducible in that sense, but it's totally complex. You have to have just the right chemical factories. You have to have exactly the right nervous system. It needs to know when to, when to release all these chemicals, mix them together, open up the gun turrets, aim the gun turrets. Um, it needs to know who its enemy is. I've seen uh, pictures where ants walk right over it, doesn't shoot them. But you get a spider up close to that thing, and bang, it's going to shoot it. And that's interesting, too, because once a spider is shot, with a bombardier beetle, if it survives, it will never again try to eat a bombardier beetle. So, do spiders have a memory like that? Yeah, obviously they do. But anyway, so here we are, and we've got this little bug. It is irreducible, needs its parts. It is very specified. It's very specific. Uh, the parts all have to be there at the same time, and totally complex, and they all have to function exactly. The timing has to be perfect on everything. And so that's, that's what they call specified irreducible complexity. So in other words, every last bit of this bug's ability to defend itself in the way that it does would have had to evolve at the same time in order for everything to come together and actually work. If one piece is missing, that poor guy is going to blow himself up. Exactly. And the evolutionists have no answer for that. They have no... Now, they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, there's other beetles that have uh, peroxide or this or that or the other thing, um, but they all have their own little irreducible complexity parts too. But that's exactly right. If, if it doesn't have all of its parts, it's dead. And there isn't any way evolution can explain how all that could be there all at the same time and all at once. So it had to have been created that way with the information in its genes as to when to do it and how to do it and what chemicals are necessary and all those kinds of things, how to build the apparatus, which brings up another huge problem the evolutionists can't, can't explain, and that is where does the information come from? I mean, the information in the genes of bombardier beetles and everything else that's alive, information is non-material. It, it, you can't grasp it. There's no way to grab it. 
uh, to put it into a gene, let's say, or there's no way to take information out of a gene. So that means all of the information in every genome of every creature, every living thing, plants, animals, humans, had to have been supernaturally put into that creature whenever that creature was created. And so all of that goes right back to God. Only God could do that. There's no way man could do it, and man hasn't come up with any mechanism to to show through evolution how it could happen. A lot of it's in the imagination of the evolutionist. And so we, if we believe the Bible, uh, the answers are there. They're not exhaustive, as a fellow named Francis Schaeffer used to say, but they are there, and we can trust it. So we can trust those early chapters of Genesis. Yes. Amen. You know, it's uh, when you look at the idea of evolution, it supposedly is random mutations acted upon by natural selection. So you have a random mutation and all of them are bad, but let's just say one of them turned out beneficial in one way, shape or form. And then natural selection, the environment, uh, you know, different predators, this, that and the other kind of works out of the population, those who don't have this skill, and the one that has this nifty new trait can now be the dominant one, and now that that organism is moving forward up the the evolutionary tree, I guess, if you will. Uh, But the idea that all of these things had to come together in one shot, it's funny too, when you look at a science textbook, and or if you ask your your biology teacher, can you give me an example of a beneficial mutation? They are generally stumped. I mean, they're going to give you something along along the lines of sickle cell anemia, or um, sometimes they'll point at flies, which all the, the the fly experiments have have not produced anything new and exciting. Or they'll talk about maybe uh, uh, antibiotic. Uh, um, resistance stuff right. like that right. but they never have an example of an increased increased complexity uh, every time there's a mutation it's a loss of information that's exactly right so, yeah they don't they don't have any examples and even the ones that they mentioned for instance uh, the problems there with the blood uh, that has uh, sickle cell anemia might help people uh, in certain climates with certain types of mosquitoes and things, uh, not get malaria, but that particular mutation has caused other problems, like a shorter lifespan and some things like that. So, um, and then, and our Lord, I think, also he's built in backup things with us. Like I was speaking up at, uh, where was it, Youngstown State University a while back, and and a student said, well, your God is stupid. Well, he makes things we don't even need. Well, hey, I got my appendix out. I'm doing just fine. And so they tell us, well, evolution tells us, well, we have all these organs and things that are leftovers from when we used to be in the monkey ape family of some sort. And well, no, they aren't vestigial. They aren't worthless. They, they aren't uh, hand-me-downs that we don't use anymore. Like even, even the appendix is a good part of our immune system when we're a baby. So there's all kinds of things that we're taught um, that we don't necessarily ever question, like I never did. I never did until those two students came and challenged me. I just thought what I, what I learned at school was right. But there's all kinds of things. When we get into evolutionary thinking, they're just, they're just made up. They, they don't have anything to back it up. <laughs> That's absolutely right. 
so a, another uh, amazing creature that defies evolution, if you will, in your second video, uh, the amazing creatures that defy evolution too, you talk about muscles. Um, and uh, those little guys blew my mind. I saw that, that, you know, they have this little trick that they do to attract fish to them. And then they use this, this attraction then to, um, well, to reproduce. Tell my listeners about that. Well, the, the muscle that I think we talk about is called a lampsilis muscle. And it's like a little clam. It's not a muscle like you have big biceps. It's a, like a little clam. It's a muscle. And what it does is um, when it's ready to uh, get its eggs somewhere where it wants them to go, uh, different species do it in different ways, but the one we have on the DVD, it will put its tissue up on top of its shell, like you know, inside of a oyster is all that stuff that you eat that it'll just put some of that up on top of its shell. And then it'll make it look like particular species of minnows. And actually, since I did those DVDs, um, I've met one of the world's experts on lampsilis mussels, and he's given me some other pictures where they'll not only mimic little different, different species of minnows, they mimic different insects and different worms. And so it's unbelievable. So they put their tissue up on top of their shell, and then it looks like uh, it has fins. It uh, looks like it has an eyeball. Uh, looks like an area where the mouth would be. And, uh, and it'll wiggle uh, exactly like a fish. And it'll attract, like the one we have in the DVD, I think it, it's a specialist. It needs a bass. If a perch would come down and try and take that bait, which is what it is, uh, it'll pull that bait inside. So you have a mussel, and there's a fish coming down to look at its bait, and it's, uh-oh, that's a perch, and boom, just pulls that bait inside. But if it's a bass, it leaves it out there. You say, well, how would a mussel know the difference between a perch and a bass? Well, somehow they do. That's probably a Ph.D. in marine biology for somebody. What's going on there? <laughs> and uh, So anyway, yeah, so that... Um, the bass comes down, and the split second that bass opens its mouth to take the bait, that muscle opens up and shoots all its eggs and larvae up into the mouth of the bass, and they're going to go in there and attach to the gills. And so they have a split second. These little teeny baby muscles, they're about as big as the head of a pin, just a little speck. And they have two shells, and they have a muscle to move the shells, and then they got a brain in there somewhere. And they know exactly what to do. And if they don't do it, they're dead because that fish is trying to suck water because it doesn't like the feel of those things in there. So it's trying to suck water and blow out its gills. And so that little teeny baby muscle has a split second to grab a hold of the gill. And if it doesn't, it's, it's blown out of there and that's the end of it. So enough of them grab a hold of the gills and they're going to stay there. They're going to eat some of the blood of the fish. Uh, they don't kill the fish. The fish doesn't like it. But then pretty soon they'll drop <laughs> off, and they then they start to grow, and and uh, they will then start mimicking different minnows. They might mimic minnows that have spots or stripes or um, different ways that they'll wiggle. 
and then and then insects. Uh, maybe a particular insect is common in that particular area of the pond or wherever this thing is, and it'll it'll do that because it knows the fish like it. I don't know how it does it, <laughs> but that's what they do. And you'd say, okay, how did that evolve? What kind of a process of evolution, if everything started with that one little speck of life, or then a little bacteria that somehow knew to reproduce itself? And, and had something to eat, what that speck of life eat. But anyway, and then it finally gets up to a muscle. But then how would it, how would it, how would evolution explain this total diversity in life forms and even in particular life forms, like one little muscle? And it doesn't just imitate, pretend to be one particular little minnow there they can they can do all kinds of things i mean only god could only god could do that that's the way i look at it yeah yeah i absolutely agree uh it is so amazing how do they know how to mimic these different fish to attract the right type of fish right and then how do we they even know that it is a bass and not some other fish like i think you said the perch um it's it is amazing it is truly amazing yeah and then and you think okay so it knows okay i need a bass but why does it need a bass uh why couldn't it work on the perch what is it about the gills of a bass and the blood of a bass that is different than the gills and blood of a perch i don't know you know maybe somebody does but i don't know there's all these questions that are out there yeah, boy, that would be, uh, you know, in another life, that yeah. would be something worthy of study right I, there. Yes, I think so. So uh, what about the giraffe? That one, uh, I think that was in the first video. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Well, actually, I wrote a book called The Evolution of a Creationist. And in between each chapter, I put an animal. And that's where the bombardier beetle is. But I also have the giraffe. And uh, I would have to say the giraffe is my favorite animal uh, to talk about, and just just because it is my favorite animal. I've been talking about giraffes now since about 1972, and uh, it's general revelation. It's studying the creation, studying what God has made uh, as compared to special or specific revelation, which is God's written word. And we, when we study what God has made, general revelation, the creation, that should drive us into the Bible to find out more about who this creator is and who this God is. And that's the way it's supposed to work. But anyway, so uh, the giraffe, bull giraffe, averages about 18 feet tall. And in order to get blood up that long skinny neck against gravity, he has a powerful pump. And that's his heart. And the heart of a bull giraffe can weigh up to 25 pounds. So it's like a big turkey in there. And uh, that heart, when it squeezes, it has all kinds of strength there. And it shoots that blood up that long skinny neck against gravity. And the giraffe does just fine. Now, the giraffe decides it's thirsty. So it's going to bend its head down to get a drink of water. Well, now, instead of pumping against gravity, that big heart is pumping with gravity, and it gives a big squeeze, 
and the giraffe's head is down drinking water and the blood goes zoom down that neck and hits his brain and blows his brains out his ears and he must be thinking i got a problem uh, when i bend my head down to get a drink of water i blow my brains out i'm gonna have to evolve something here to fix this problem well dead animals can't evolve they they can't fix problems but of course he he doesn't blow his brains out he doesn't die well why well as he bends his head down the our lord the creator the lord jesus built into his artery in the neck little valves like little spigots and they all close at exactly the right time and but the last pulse of blood is beyond that last valve and when his head is down it's under enough pressure to burst the little arteries in his brain but the last pulse of blood doesn't go into the brain the last pulse of blood goes like zoop underneath the brain into a sponge of blood vessels and it's called the reit mirabilis or as some people say the rete mirabilis but anyway that little sponge gently expands he's getting his drink of water he hasn't blown his brains out and now he sees an antelope uh, running toward him. Well, he just ignores it. Or now he sees a lion coming toward him. He, oh, i got to get out of here. That, the lion wants to eat me. And you, you have to say, well, how do animals know which ones want to eat them and which ones don't? But anyway, he says, i got to get out of here. So he jumps up. He runs about three steps and passes out. Not enough oxygen to his brain. So as the lion is eating him, he must be thinking, oh, i got another problem here. Whenever I get up too fast, I pass out and the lions eat me. I'm going to have to evolve something here to fix my problem. Well, dead animals can't evolve. They can't fix problems. But, of course, he doesn't pass out. Why? Because as he comes up, those valves in the artery open. That sponge under the brain gently squeezes that last pulse of oxygenated blood up into his brain, and he's doing just fine. And I say again, only God could do that. He is irreducibly complex. You can't have a partially evolved valve in the neck or he blows his brains out. You can't have a partially evolved nervous system that doesn't tell those valves, oh, oh, quickly, time to close, or oh, oh, quickly, time to open, uh, if you don't have the sponge under the brain. He still blows his brains out. Uh, every single step is required for that giraffe to stay alive from the day it's born. And so it had to have been made with all that equipment already in there and fully functional, ready to go. And so we're right back to God the Creator again. So I think the giraffe is a wonderful example of God's creative ability, his genius when you think about it, because he didn't have anything to start with. Think about this. He thought all this, all these, everything in the universe. He thought it all up. And he must have thought of every possible option of everything. And then he spoke it into existence. And it worked. <laughs> and it knew how to reproduce. And it knew what to eat. And uh, it's just amazing. The God of the Bible is just amazing. We can give him honor and praise and glory because of what he's done in his creation. Amen. Amen. And it just seems like everywhere you look, you see his fingerprints, his design uh, in everything. It's yeah. Awesome. Now, when you think about that, uh, do you think of anything in particular, like when you're thinking God and his design? There's so many things 
that I think about when I think in, uh, of his design. It, it just seems like everywhere you look, when you look at uh, the the universe that he's created and how vast it is, how everything is perfectly timed like clockwork. We've got uh, Earth that's not too close to the sun uh, that we would burn up, but it's not so far away that uh, we would freeze. Uh, we have a moon that rotates at just the right uh, distance and speed so that we can have the tectonic uh, activity that is necessary for life on Earth. Um, there's there's just so many factors that go into it. It, it really is amazing. It, it, w one of the things that you bring up in one of your videos um, which I'm not sure if this would fit in the category of ir irreducible complexity, but it's just something that fascinates me. You brought up a little segment about dogs and, you know, everybody loves dogs. Well, just about everybody. And they have this ability to smell things. Yes. Um, tell my listeners about dogs. Yes. Well, uh, we, we love dogs. We, we have a little dog, a little peekapoo and, she likes to say her prayers. We have, we have a little stool, and uh, we'll, we'll say, okay, long time to say your prayers, and she'll put her feet up on the stool, and but she'll just look at you. you say, well, if you're going to say your prayers, you have to bow your head. So then she'll put her head down between her paws and wait till we say amen. <laughs> so they're smart, and they have big, big vocabularies that dogs can learn, and uh, several hundred words that they, they can learn. and uh, But then they also have, so they're very intelligent, but they also have this ability you know, to smell. And they, there are re reports that, for instance, a bloodhound, and we don't know if that has the most acute or sensitive uh, ability to smell, but they say that if a bloodhound can smell a trail of someone, like through the woods, as long as a year after they went through there. Uh, or you have certain dogs that have been trained to uh, smell a melanoma on a person's skin, a, a cancerous mole, and they can smell on your skin, and they can, they'll stop right there, and they can smell it as a melanoma, as a potential serious cancer, before the doctor can even diagnose it. The, the, the dog can somehow smell some, some odor that is given off through your skin, through the mole, and once it learns what that smell is, uh, and then it starts sniffing on a body that maybe has had one before or something, or maybe not, and it'll sniff around and whoops, right there. And so it can tell the doctors, yep, there's a, there's a melanoma, because you want to catch them as soon as you possibly can uh, so that they don't spread and do what they call metastasize and go other places in your body, move around. And, and so, yeah, that's one thing. And then they also have, uh, there's all kinds of things they do now with dogs, but another one is for a people that will have seizures, they can have a, a dog that somehow senses, oh, in about two or three minutes, my uh, owner here is going to have a seizure, and they'll bark or they'll hit hit you with their foot or they'll alert you that oh boy, um, you've you've got about two or three minutes here. So like if you're driving a car, 
and you have a problem with seizures, that dog can say, there's one coming, and that gives you two or three minutes to get your car off the road, or, or if you're somewhere else, go somewhere and sit down or whatever. And you're thinking, okay, what is it? What do they really sense? That uh, And then another thing is how they can train those dogs uh, with a particular person to sense that particular person's um, um, time here before they're going to have a seizure of some sort. And it's a, so uh, people have learned how to work with dogs and other animals and train them to do things that seem almost impossible. But I think the Lord has made it that way. He, he's made us in his image, in his likeness, and we are to take dominion uh, over the animal kingdom, over the plant kingdom. And, uh, and in doing that, I think he has enabled mankind to find ways to use gifts that he's given these animals that are a huge help to us as people. So I think it all works together here for God's glory when you come, come right down to it. Plus, I mean, what better friend can you have a dog our dog, uh, if it does something bad, it knows it right away. And uh, and if you want to give it a bath, we'll start singing a little song. And you start singing that song. And I mean, the minute that dog hears about the first three notes, he's under the couch or under the bed. <laughs> so they hear music, too. <laughs> and they can identify it. Which is something I think. Anyway, yeah, I think dogs are great. <laughs> you, and then we saw something on where was it? YouTube, I think, of some young lady that lived on a farm somewhere, and she couldn't afford a horse, but their parents had cows, and so she got this one cow, and she trained the cow, and she rode it like a horse, and she would oh. jump fences. I mean, she'd ride that cow and jump fences like you can jump fences on a horse. And uh, you're thinking, not a cow. Or then you think, cats. Can you train cats? So we were at somewhere recently where they had a bunch of trained house cats. And I mean, these cats, they did all kinds of things, but they had to be trained to do it. I didn't think you could train a cat. I thought a cat was had as a brain of its own. Have you ever, Do you know anything <laughs> about cats? Oh, I've got my own cat, Mog. He's approaching 20 years old. Wow. And um, yes, you can definitely tell he's very intelligent, uh -huh. but it seems like the only thing going on in his mind is food or pet. Food <laughs> or pet. <laughs> pet me, pet me, pet me. Okay, now feed me. Now pet me some more. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the mountain lion uh, has... Uh, these special hairs on its paws where like if it hunts at night most of the time and if it let's say a pitch black night it jumps on the back of an elk and it, it can't see and the elk is thrashing around and trying to get it off of there so it has to know where the neck of the elk is because it's going to snap the neck and how's it going to know that in the dark well as soon as it grabs a hold of the back of the elk the little hairs on the paw of the cougar, the mountain lion, tell the mountain lion the hairs on the back of the elk are going that way. That means the head 
is the other way. Because uh, if it jumped on the back and tried to snap the tail, that isn't going to help. So instantly, it knows which way to go to get the neck, to snap the neck. And uh, so it makes it a quick kill. So it's, it's kinder to the elk, and it's easier on the lion. And all of that because of these little hairs that tell its brain which way the hairs on the back of the elk go so it knows which way to go. Well, that's information. Well, how, how, would, how, how would an animal have that information unless God put that in there? I think it's just amazing. All right. So we're going to stop right here. Um, there will be a part two to this podcast because Dr. Martin was on a roll and he had so many uh, incredible creatures to talk about. So it really was a fun time. Really gracious, wonderful man. And so look forward to part two. That'll be coming out pretty soon here. Uh, friends, by the way, if anybody is interested in helping me make uh, basically videos out of my audios. How is that going to work? What's that going to look like? Well, um, basically you're going to take a completed audio message and you're going to use one of the many different uh, video softwares out there. In fact, Windows PCs come with a kind of a generic dumbed down video making software all you're going to do is take the audio, import it into this program, and then throw some various pictures to it, pictures that are not going to get me in trouble. And by that I mean we can't be putting any kind of copyrighted pictures. You know, kind of funny about that, actually. Um, <laughs> I haven't told you about this yet, friends, but uh, I had the First Church of Christ Scientists try to sue me. Uh, they threatened to sue me. Uh, because one of my listeners out there took my series on Scientology. No, no, scratch that. Not Scientology, Christian Science. Um, and took it and made a video, which I'm totally cool with. Okay, but he made the video and he put their uh, First Church of Christ Scientist logo in the video as a picture. And um, to be honest, uh, I think that this uh, movement was just nitpicking. They're looking for a reason to get me to take the audio down completely, but they contacted me and <laughs> threatened to sue me uh, because of that video, which I responded back and said, that is not my video. I do not own that account. I have no control over other people when they take my audios and make them into videos. But having said that, when we do, whoever does take this on for me, uh, I'm praying for somebody to to help me out with this. But whoever does take this on will need to find images that are not copyrighted so that, uh, you know, because I'm going to be posting uh, this on my YouTube channel and I don't want to get sued. <laughs> so, but, you know, the stakes are not that high. It's not going to be a big deal. We just got to be a little careful. Um, anyway, that, that was probably not a good sell, was it? Um, I do need help. If anybody out there would like to do this, yeah, it's just nothing more than importing the audio, throwing some pictures to it, and then putting it on YouTube. Oddly enough, people, I, I don't get it, but there is a large audience on YouTube that loves to put on basically podcasts and listen to podcasts, but on YouTube. And they're not even looking at the screen, but they'll hit play and then they'll continue doing their work. You know, people that sit at desk jobs and, and the like that uh, don't necessarily have to 
engage their brains in whatever they're typing away at at their computer. Uh, and so they'll have a little bit of podcast going in the background. So anyway, there you go. There is a cause. Um, if anybody wants to jump in and help me with that ministry, please Praise God, that would be awesome. So anyway, next week, we're going to hear more from Dr. Martin. Uh, If you ask for my own personal opinion, part two is better than part one. You're going to love it. He talks about the crimson worm. Blew my mind. You have got to hear that. So uh, with that, I love you guys. We'll see you next week.